If you have not seen the movie Titanic, you might not get the meme of the old lady that says it's been 84 years. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Yes? That's from that movie, if you didn't know that. But that also could be the introduction to our sermon this morning. Because we think Daniel is somewhere in the window of around 84 years old. And so if I were a graphic artist, I really wanted to take this picture of the very young-looking Daniel in the drawing and, like, superimpose it over her face. Uh, but I don't know how to do all that. Um, so it's, it's been like 84 years. It's been about 70 years, a little less probably, um, that Daniel as a teenager and his teenage friends were taken in captivity and brought to Babylon. So somewhere around 84 years old, um, it is the year 539 B.C. And that's going to be significant as, as we uh, kind of park here this morning again to say this is not the teenage boy Daniel, right? And if you're over the age of 84 this morning, I'm sorry to inform you that that's old, but that's, that's not young. I'm just saying this dude is not a kid anymore, Right? There's an interesting um, painting that you might be familiar with, even if art is not your thing, uh, if, if art doesn't like move you or speak to you. Uh, in the year 1893, uh, a piece of art was created called The Scream, and you've probably seen this in some form, right? Rather troubling piece of art, um, a little bit disturbing. Uh, the, the Norwegian artist Edvard Munch is really only known for kind of this piece of art. He's not that well known throughout history apart from the scream. But there's an interesting backstory to this piece of art that we have just discovered in the last couple of years. This piece of art, um, for years, art historians believe, for decades actually, that someone had vandalized it. There was graffiti. You could barely see it if you were just walking through uh, an art gallery or an art museum. Uh, it was written with pencil in the top left-hand corner. Um, you could barely see it um, without getting really close and using special black lights or infrared cameras and whatnot. Uh, but there was graffiti on this incredibly famous and important painting. And the graffiti said in Norwegian, can only have been painted by a madman. That's the graffiti on this invaluable piece of art. But here's what we discovered. We discovered something about that backstory just in the last couple of years when it was brought to uh, an art gallery in Oslo. Two years after this was painted, it was at its first display, 1895. And the reviews were not positive. The chatter was not positive. As a matter of fact, pe- people who knew uh, Edvard Munch's family story uh, one that was wrecked by mental illness. He had a sister nearby that was in an asylum. They said clearly it's hereditary. This man must be troubled when we look at this painting. And specifically, there was a group discussion at the Students Association, because students know everything, about this piece of art that historians say Munch attended himself. And he heard... A young medical student who from the year 1895, we still know his name today, and it is an awesome name, Johann Scharfenberg. That's just a cool name. 
Johann Scharfenberg, the young medical student, said out loud in front of everyone um, that he believed Munch's mental health should be questioned, that his paintings prove that he is not of sound mind, and then very soon after we see this graffiti can only have been painted by a madman. And here's, here's what we just recently learned. Uh, people who are way smarter than me use special technology to, to um, infrared cameras and, and all this technology to really get a clear picture of this pencil handwriting. And then they brought in handwriting experts who looked at Munch's diaries and some of his handwritten uh, explanations of his work. And they discovered he wrote this himself. He vandalized his own piece of work with his own graffiti. And essentially this morning, what we are going to do is we are going to look at the true artist, the true creator, who's going to graffiti in his own creation with his own hand in the text today. So grab your Bible if you would. If you do not have one, there is one underneath the seat in front of you. We're going to hold up our Bibles and say our creed together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. It's page 695 uh, if you're using one of those Bibles from the, the seat in front of you. Book of Daniel, chapter number 5. While you're turning, I will tell you something that we have, uh, an advantage that we have about this chapter versus the rest of the book of Daniel, and honestly, about most of the rest of God's Word. We have an incredibly specific date from history about when we think this story went down. Very specific. Like, we think probably it was on October 11th or 12th. How cool is that? 539 B.C. So either the Wednesday or Thursday a week ago, we just celebrated the 2,562-year anniversary of the text that we are reading this morning, according to historians. And what do they know? I don't know. I just think that's kind of cool. Verse number one, King Belshazzar. If you've been working with us through the book of Daniel, you're like, wait a second, who's that? We've not seen his name before. We'll explain that in just a minute. He made a great feast. How great was the feast? For a thousand of his lords, we'll find out later, and their concubines and wives. That's a great feast. Some of you are already worried about Thanksgiving because you've got some family coming over. This is a great feast. They drank wine in front of the thousand or with the thousand. So here's an interesting thing. I've, I've said throughout the series that scholars have loved to try to pick apart the book of Daniel. I was talking with a friend this week, and he said, you know, in the first century we, uh, of Christianity, the first generation of followers of Jesus, we already find skeptics and critics who are trying to rob the authority of the story. There's always been skeptics, and there's always been critics. And one of the criticisms of the book of Daniel by the scholarly folk is that King Belshazzar was not the final king of Babylon. By the end of the chapter, Babylon's going to be overtaken and destroyed and fall. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and they're like, he wasn't the last king. This proves that God's word is not accurate. This proves that God's word didn't get it right. Because after King Nebuchadnezzar, 
there's three kings who, honestly, they did not reign very long at all. Nebuchadnezzar's been dead around 23 years at this time. And in 23 years, there's been three kings, one of which ruled for 17 years. So the other two guys were not um, in leadership for very long at all. Nabonidus is what history says was the final king of Babylon, not Belshazzar. Bible must not be true. Let's just all go fishing today. I don't know. I don't like even like to fish. I don't know why that came to mind. Tommy was talking about fishing this morning. So let's go fishing. I don't know. So for years this was criticized. Who's Belshazzar? And then in 1854, there was an archaeological dig around this part of the world. And the Nabonidus cylinder was discovered. Uh, not right now, preferably, but at some point in time, you can Google the Nabonidus cylinder and see really cool pictures of it. Uh, it's just a clay um, cylinder with writing, cuneiform writings all around it, etched around it. The reason that's important is in that discovery, part of the etchings are a prayer to the gods for the well-being, the long life and prosperity of King Nabonidus and his eldest son, Belshazzar. Oops, the Bible might be dependable. Awesome, I love it. Now, why was Nebuchadnezzar not ruling here in this moment? Uh, for 14, we think, maybe 13, of the 17 years of his reign, he did not reign in Babylon. We've talked about how this whole area of the world was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, and he ruled it from modern-day Iraq in Babylon well, Nabonidus apparently wanted to live somewhere else. And so he removed himself from Babylon and placed his son as the king of that place. Which is why we're going to read multiple times in the text that when he's trying to get something out of people, he promises them the third place of power in the kingdom. Not the second. That's where he is. His dad was in the first so that's the explanation for whatever that's worth. The other thing I would say about this text is we see that um, they had a great feast and drank wine. Um, and actually in Aramaic, this word wine means lots of wine. Truly, you, if you want to Google the, the Aramaic word here, it doesn't mean a glass, nor a bottle, nor a crate. We're talking like a truckload. This is quite the rager that is going on here with all of their concubines and wives, right? This is, this is rowdy, okay? Um, some of you remember college, and you're like, yes, I've been to that party. I don't, I don't want to hear those stories and confess that to somebody else later. Um, th- this is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like on steroids here. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold... And of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, pause, I just said Nebuchadnezzar was his great-great-great-grandfather. In Aramaic, there is not a word for grandfather. So if you read father, that might mean father, or it could mean lots of greats, grandfather. Same with son. There wasn't grandson in the Bible. That's why Jesus is called the son of David. David was not his dad, right? And so uh, that's also true in biblical Hebrew and Aramaic. Anyways. So his 
great-great-great-grandfather, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. He brought them uh, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. So these special vessels, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament or with Jewish faith, uh, you might, understand, might not understand how specific the instruction was from Yahweh about the vessels that were to be designed, created, and protected, and then consecrated and set apart for only special use in the house of God, the temple. So this is pretty defiant to God that they're choosing to stop using their red solo cups and instead are going to bring these consecrated worship vessels into their rager here. Then they brought in the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, the king and his lords, his wives, concubines, drank from them. And now it's about to change from just sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll. And it's going to become a worship service. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And here's where the story gets amazing. If you're not familiar with the story or if this is new to you, or if you think you already know the story because you heard in Sunday school, re-engage because we should be amazed at this immediately. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. How many of you growing up, you watched the old black and white Adams family? They had to go to so much trouble to create the, the visual effect of thing, right? And here, before there were any visual effects, a hand appears and begins to write. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, what is this cup lined with? Because I be tripping. He didn't say it. That's not in the text. But I love this next verse because... Again, I'm going old school. So we had black and white uh, Adam's family. So now think old school like Bugs Bunny. Then the king's color changed. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Okay. You poor young people. You don't know what good cartoons are. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. <laughs> like, who's ever been so scared they actually did that? I don't know. Apparently that's a thing. The king called loudly. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You'd be like, somebody. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, Chaldeans, the astrologers. Here we go again. These guys are like, oh, great. We're going to fail. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple. That's the visible physical representation of royal position, have a chain of gold around his neck. Since we're going old school, there's Mr. T. I don't know. What is wrong with my brain right now? I must feel old today. Oh, and here we go. And shall be the third ruler in the kingdom, right? Because he's already the second. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation, and, and we don't know why they couldn't read it, or, or does, the, does the text mean they read the words, it just didn't make sense to them? But then that would imply the interpretation. I don't know. Um, since we're talking about artists this morning, when, when Rembrandt did his painting of this moment, which again, on your own time, you can Google that. It's a fantastic piece of art. In, in his rendering, the, the letters are on top of each other, and so... In Rembrandt's mind, the letters were out of order. That's why they couldn't read it. 
But we don't know why. The, the text doesn't tell us why they couldn't read these words. Um, we're we're going to skip ahead a little bit. They can't read it or interpret it, so they're freaking out. Then the queen, which we assume would have been his mother, comes to him and says, Listen, there's a guy in your kingdom who's really good at revealing the mysteries that the wise men can't. And she begins to tell him some of the stories of Daniel. Daniel's brought in before the king, and he tells Daniel, the wise men couldn't figure this out. And Daniel's like, yep, I've heard that before. Have you read my book? <laughs> that, that was in like every chapter so far, right? And then he tells him the, the promise. If you can tell me what it says and what it means, you'll get the purple clothing, you'll get the gold, you'll get the third position in the kingdom. Verse 17 is where we'll pick back up. Day, Daniel answered, I'm going to say David, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. I just think that's worth parking on, maybe on your own time, and maybe contrast that with a lot of the voices we call prophetic in our culture today. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O King, the Most High God. Again, we see that name for God appear multiple times in this book. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, slash great-great-great-grandfather, kingship, greatness, glory, majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all the peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would be killed, he killed, and whom he would keep alive, he kept alive. And whom he would raise up, he, he, those whom he would, he humbled. But not himself. <laughs> when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like the, that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He, he was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sees over it and whom he will. Sets over it in whom he will. And you, his son, or great-great-great-grandson, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath. Whew. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. Hmm. Then from his presence the hand was sent. The writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson, or Uparson, depending on the translation that you read, it's just the plural of Perez. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been found, or you've been weighed, rather, in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom's divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Again, these are not strange Aramaic words, so we don't know why they couldn't read them. But I do think I understand why they couldn't make sense of them. They're just measurements. They're, they're just 
kind of calculations. It would be as though a, a hand appeared here today and wrote, floating in the sky, gram, ounce, pound. Right? Or penny, nickel, dime. Inch, foot, yard. And we would not know what to make of that. That, that would be, I think, the closest analogy. Verse 29, he gave the interpretation, so Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was about it, uh, made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. There's a phrase that we've heard a lot probably in our lives, the writings on the wall, right? That commonly used phrase finds its origin here in this story. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to restate, forgive the redundancy here, but I think this has to be said. Um, this is called the book of Daniel, but this is the story of Daniel's God, just like every other page of this book. Ultimately, this is not the call to be brave and courageous like Daniel. Clearly, he's courageous. We'll see that again next week. This is a call to have courage in Daniel's God. And, and every week we've tried to say that the character and nature, the unchanging character and nature of God still speaks to us today. There's timeless truths here from the Word of God, and that is for sure today. This morning what we're going to do for the next few moments together is we're going to take some special cameras and reveal the truth graffiti that's written on all of our hearts. Because while it's interesting to see what's true for Belshazzar, I think it's necessary that we see what's true for us today. And this word that was written in such a strange way, the writing is on the wall, but the writing is on our wall as well. So we're going we're gonna to talk about four truths that are the writing on the wall. And I will just tell you the first three are heavy. And so I'm going to ask before we jump in, please hang with me. Okay? We good? Ready? The writing's on the wall. Here's the truth graffiti number one. Our days are numbered. We are all going to die Aren't you glad you came to church today? And not just are we all going to die, we have way less control over that than we like to tell ourselves we do. For the context of the text, this is, uh, his days are, are numbered, and the number is zero. <laughs> um, this is his last day. And for us, our information, I pray that that's none of our number. But literally, history tells us that as they're partying, while this text is happening, history tells us that for weeks, the army of the Medes and Persians has been coming towards Babylon, this massive army led by Cyrus, the great general, who's been hired by Darius the Mede, King Darius, 
And because so many people have tried to attack Babylon and have had no success, he has to come up with a new idea. And what he determined, the way that he uh, chose to attack, is the river Euphrates went straight through the middle of Babylon. There's a portion of the walls where it would just flow through. And so he, farther upstream, dammed off the river Euphrates, redirected it towards a swamp, and just waited for the water to get low enough that... Historians say it was knee level. I'm not sure how we know that, but that's that's writings that we found. They walked through a little bit of water straight under the wall and started killing all the nearest soldiers. And that is probably happening as the party's going on. Why would he be partying in the face of this doom? Why Why would he be partying like this? The answer is that we don't know. But it'd be interesting to kind of crawl into his mind for a minute. Was it arrogance? Did he think we're invincible? We've fought plenty of armies. We'll be fine. Or did he know this is the end? We might as well use up the rest of the wine. We don't want to leave any for them. Or is he terrified and he literally is trying to amuse himself into stupor? Or does he think this is how he can send a message of a brave face, of looking courageous? I I have no idea. But the reality is all of us kind of do weird things when we're confronted with our own mortality. We, We tend to react in all kinds of strange ways. And the fact is, while this is true in this context for Belshazzar, that night, it's inevitably true for all of us in this room today. The reality is our days are numbered too. Psalm 39, maybe not the prayer you came here planning to pray today, but the prayer is this, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. The younger we are, the more invincible that we think we are. What a healthy and holy prayer that says, God, I confess this thing called life is fragile. I have far less authority than I like to pretend to. Billions and billions of dollars are spent in this economy every year on skincare products that try to tell us that our number is larger than it actually is. Billions of dollars are spent on plastic surgery trying to tell us that our number is larger than it actually is. I would say it this way. I think if we whittled it down to just some simple categories, I think when it comes to the reality of death, we tend to respond in one of three ways. Panic, party, or peace. When it comes to the reality of how fragile life is, we tend to panic. That is, we obsess. Or we party. We numb ourselves out. We distract ourselves. Escapism. Many of us feel stuck in the idea of panic if we think about death too long. Some of the most brilliant people who've ever lived, who we think had it all together, were terrified of death. Steve Jobs spent most of his life not believing in the existence of God. I'm an Apple guy. I think the story of Apple is interesting, and I love Apple products. But the thing about Steve Jobs is he was diagnosed with cancer. And his brilliance couldn't fight the cancer. He had no invention that could be cancer. At the very end of his life, very near the end of his life, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And they asked him again, so do you still not believe in God? 
And his answer was different than, than any recorded answer we've ever heard as a general public from Steve Jobs. He, he was very open. He said most of his life he didn't think so, but after being diagnosed with cancer, he found himself desperately wanting to believe. He said this, he said, it can't be that when we die, that it all just fades to black. All the wisdom we've accumulated as a race, all our accomplishments somehow have to live on. Interestingly, he went on to explain that's why he refused to put an on-off button on the phone, on the iPhone. You've got to hold a button and then slide a thing over. He couldn't stand the concept of just flipping a switch and something being dead. Every time you have to do a hard reboot of your iPhone, you can think about Steve Jobs' panic about facing death. Many of us saw this in our culture in 1999. I know those of you closest to the front here are like, you mean back in the 1900s? Yes, we were all riding horse and buggies and eating cheese and I don't know. So, um, Maurice and I had been married for five months on New Year's Eve, 1999, and wondering, is this it? Like, did we get five years of marriage and the world's going to explode on Y2K, you know? Is that the end? Um, There were all these doomsday uh, theories that the Y2K computer bug was going to shut the world down. Civilization as we know it. There would be power grids that would fail and food supply chains would be uh, irrevocably broken and money would evaporate from banks because it's all digital. There's no actual money anywhere. There would be gas shortages because we wouldn't know where it was needed. And basically the world was going to fall apart. And people were genuinely worried. There was genuinely a sense of panic. Some people stockpiled. Some of you might still have some MREs that you got during Y2K. You can tell me afterwards if you want to confess your stockpiling. I read a fantastic story about a guy, true story, uh, about a guy who had a bunch of friends over on New Year's Eve, uh, Y2K. And as it was getting towards midnight, he kind of secretly slipped out and went downstairs to the basement, listed for them counting down the ball dropping in New York City. Three, two, one. At midnight, he turned the power off in the house (laughs) and listened to them scream (laughs) with friends like that. Who needs enemies? Some of us, when we face how fragile all of this is, our response is panic. But that same moment is also the moment in history that gave us the phrase, party like it's 1999. Right? Some people were like, well, if the world's going to burn, I'm going to be too buzzed to notice. And so we created the phrase, party like it's 1999. Some of you young people have used that phrase and you didn't even know what it meant. Belshazzar is partying like it was 539. That's what's happening right here. He's got t-shirts made whole thing. Blaise Pascal in the middle 1600s, not 1999, in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal said the most consistent human response to facing death is distracting ourselves with amusement. It's to party. What I believe in the, the grand gospel narrative is we have a better option than either panic or party. And that is peace that there is a sovereign God on the throne who loves his people. 
Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And this morning, I did not want to greet you and say, you're going to die. But because I want wisdom and wholeness for you, I owe it to you this morning to say, Mene is the truth graffiti on all of our houses. Our days are numbered. The only difference between Belshazzar and us is he was given very specific and very short information. And so the question this morning that I think has to be asked, if I love you at all, is are you prepared to meet God? That's truth graffiti number one. The writing is on the wall number two, and that is Tekel. We all fall short. So if, if the first one is bad news, then this is what we would like to call really bad news. None of us are as good as God. None of us who are over the age of 30 enjoy crawling on the scale, but when it comes to our goodness, it's terrifying. If that gets put on the scale... It's horrifying. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You ever seen the, the movie Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger? Right? Uh, during a jousting competition, the evil Count Adamar says to William Thatcher, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And then at the end of the movie, they repeat that over him while he's laying on his back. It's the great cinematic moment, right? The fact is, that's not just what's spoken over villains. It's spoken over the best heroes that we have to offer on planet Earth. As much as our days being numbered is God's ultimate verdict for all of us, this also is God's ultimate verdict for the best of us. We don't measure. And here's the thing. We like to measure ourselves against people that we know are worse than us. We have our own hijacked version of Tekel where we're like, no, but I'm better than that guy. The problem is when compared to the glory of God and the perfection of God, which is the standard, the common denominator is we all fall short. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the criticisms of modern culture is that church would dare to call us sinners. That is shaming, that is judging. And I just want to say this. That there's not shame in this. This is just reality. This is the great human unifier. We're all a mess. Welcome to the party. It's not an issue of like, this is the religious got it together people. Maybe you grew up in a church that maybe accidentally or maybe intentionally kind of sent that message. Let me just say that our message here is not this is the got it together people. And we really need to go help the wayward people outside these walls. This is the welcome to the busted up club. I'm the captain. We're all falling short. Sometimes our fallenness has been so obvious and so ugly and so painful, we couldn't run from it. And we thought there'd be no way back until we faced it and we're honest about it. And that's when we found healing and health and wholeness. We've all fallen short. This is just what's written on the walls of our party. Our 
best just doesn't measure up. I, I love that that the wise men are brought back into this story again. The astrologers, the Chaldeans, like I, I just love that they show back up again and they're like, oh, are we ever going to get one? It, they had to have gotten a lot right, right? Because they hadn't lost their jobs yet. So I'm not saying they're bad at their jobs. I'm just saying the only stories that got written down, <laughs> they're just like, but here's the thing. That's a great picture of us. In the moments when we need it most, our best just doesn't quite measure up. Right? Like, I, I love that they're included in the story again. And that's not just true of them. There comes a point in which the wise people of every culture, of every generation, can't answer the hardest questions. Throughout all of human history, the, the people who once were called scientists are now called frauds. Politicians have not been able to answer the hardest questions of humanity throughout civilization. Educators have peddled one theory after another until somebody comes up with a better theory that can sell more books. We've tried to look at celebrities to give us a shining light and just watch their lives implode. We've turned to athletes and we just can't figure out why they're not great leaders. And now today we've created this new thing called influencers who are people who literally offer nothing to society. They've not lived They've not done anything. They've not gone anywhere. They don't actually know anything. And yet they're influencers with just like thoughts. Like, (laughs) like, share. Like, I don't even, our best ideas. Skip Heitzig said, just as with Babylon, when it comes to the ultimate questions Our wise men have failed us. From Stephen Hawking to Steve Jobs to party leaders on the left and party leaders on the right, we need a word from God. That's why Daniel was like, keep your money. I don't have anything to offer. This is just a word from God. And and the message here that Daniel, before he tells him, Tekel, you've been found wanting. Before he tells him that, he's like, Your great-grandfather already walked this road, bro. He tried to steal glory from God and ate grass like an ox. You've already been told the stories that trying to rob God of his glory doesn't end well. And the fact is, that's my story. I've never taken a breath in my life where my flesh didn't want to steal glory from God. Make it my kingdom. The Hebrew word for glory has the same root meaning as the word weight. When I weigh my glory, it crushes me and I fall short of the glory of God. So the first thing he tells the king is... is, You've tried to steal glory from God. And then he tells him, you've taken the gifts of God and you've used them for the wrong purposes. You've taken the vessels from the temple of God, consecrated, set apart, holy in the Lord. And you've used them for your own purposes. And what an indictment to the American way of life. We've taken the gifts of God and tried to turn them into servicing our own kingdom. Or our own glory. And for many of us, that involves our own talents. Do you realize that if you are good at something, that's not just for you? 
God has given you talents and giftings for His glory. That you could serve people and serve Him. Not just get more stuff. And the same is true of our resources. God has not just entrusted resources to us so that we could accumulate more. It's that we would leverage them for a greater kingdom than our own. The writing is on the wall. Our days are numbered. And we all fall short. Man, that's bad news. Give me something good. Okay. Truth graffiti number three. Our judgment is coming. Paras to divide, chopping up what's real and what's not. And in this case, your kingdom's divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And for us, what that means is the truth will be separated from the error. What was genuine will be separated from what was fake. Judgment is coming. We've all been given a numbered set of days. Hebrews chapter 9 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so if that's the bread, what's, what's the meat inside that sandwich? Our days are numbered. Judgment's coming. We fall short. That is a sad sandwich. That is also the truth graffiti written on all of our lives. Maybe you know this. I I did not know this. Um, I learned in studying for this sermon about the warnings that were given to the Titanic. We, We started off talking about it's been 84 years. And maybe I learned this in school and just wasn't paying attention as I often was not. But at least five clear messages were not just received, they were written down and not handed off to the captain from other vessels warning them of icebergs. And then a sixth at 10.55 p.m., a ship called the Californian radioed to say, it's so bad we've come to a full stop. We're in a field of ice. The problem is none of those messages started with the right graffiti. None of them had the code that required the radio man to give the message to the captain. That message from the Californian, that ship was so close that there was feedback that rang in. Jack Phillips was the radio man. It rang in his ears and he, he signaled back, shut up, shut up, I am busy. That's what he said to them. And what we know is what he was working on is passengers that said, please get these messages sent out to my friends and family about the lovely time that I'm having on this unsinkable ship. He was so busy entertaining his guests that he ignored the warnings. And less than 45 minutes after saying, shut up, shut up, I am too busy, they struck an iceberg. What an indictment of the American way of life. I'm too busy to deal with this right now. And and this morning, I just lovingly want to give a warning signal that says, 
our days are numbered and I don't know your number. But I do know that we all fall short and we will stand before the throne of God one day. And that sounds like terrible news if the story ends there. But here's truth graffiti number four. Our story isn't over. (laughs) It is true that judgment's coming. It is true that our days are numbered and that I will stand before God and I won't live up to his perfection. And yet I'm just telling you, I'm just going to tell you this morning, I I don't mean this like braggadocious. I'm not scared of that day. I don't want it to be today. <laughs> be real clear. Maybe if you watch my diet habits, you might think I want it to be today. I don't want it to be today. But when that day comes, I, and the reason I'm not afraid of it is I will not stand before the throne depending on my goodness. I won't stand before God doing the math of weighing the scales of my wanting. I want you to notice a verse that doesn't seem like good news. You just got to hang with me for a second, okay? You with me? This is the good news part of this. So, like, check back in. Here's the verse. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. That does not seem like good news. Unless we step back for a moment and go, what this means is God keeps his promises. All of them. Now, I hope this wasn't bad news for Belshazzar. I mean, he gave Daniel all those nice gifts. Maybe he repented and humbled himself before God in the final moments of his life. But I don't want to talk about deathbed confessions here for a minute. I want to talk about a God who keeps his promises. And the reason that's so important is if we just turn over to the next page, Daniel chapter 7, an older man now, Daniel, sees a vision in the night. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He caught a vision of Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And if the promise was true about Belshazzar, then the promise is true about his coming kingdom. The story's not over. My days are numbered. His aren't. We all fall short. He doesn't. Judgment's coming. But the judge has already come and taken our punishment for us. The story isn't over. In between how short life is and the coming judgment is our fallenness. And that's terrifying. Unless we live somewhere else. Which is why our anchor verse for this series has been Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. I am not building a life on my goodness, my stability, my plans, or my righteousness. I want to build a life on the everlasting arms of God upholded by His righteous right hand. That God knows how fragile I am, how fallen I am, and yet still pursues me and still loves me. The great Tim Keller, I just can't believe he's with the Lord now, but 
The great Tim Keller said, to be fully loved but not known is superficial. To be fully known and not loved is every human's greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what it is to be loved by God. Tim Keller said the gospel in four words, fully known, fully loved. (laughs) He knows you better than you know you. He knows your fallenness better than you know it. He knows your mistakes better than you know them. He's not asking you to have it all together. He loves you. That's the glory of the gospel. Keller goes on to say, The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. This is the glory of the gospel. The truth graffiti of the gospel. The the revealed hope of the gospel. My days are numbered, and I'm not glorious. And I will stand before the throne of God one day. Because he raised from the dead, the story isn't over. Here's how numbered our days were. Colossians chapter 2. Here's the handwriting on the wall. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He is made alive Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Look at this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He cleaned up the graffiti. He's taken it out of the way. How did he do this? Having nailed it to the cross. What cleans off this bad news graffitied on my life is nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. 